Well, if you would, take your Bibles and open them up. And I really want to say to Deuteronomy, but I won't. Open them up to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And we will actually have a few texts we are going to glance at this morning. We won't be able to peer into any single text. We're going to take a few texts, but I'm going to read to us Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13 through verse 20. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. And then along the way, we will introduce some other texts to you, a bit unconventional, perhaps unorthodox for us here at First Baptist, but every so often in between expositional series, I will choose to do a topical or thematic series, which I will explain in just a moment. So Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, and because this is the word of God and you are the people of God, this is the Lord's day. If you are able, would you please stand Matthew writes, as he's carried along by the Spirit. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. As I have shared with many of you before, if you come to this church on a regular basis, when I came to faith in Christ, I was discipled by a local church pastor who lived in Gatesville, Texas, a small rural town not far from Waco, Texas. His name was Willie Clark. Pastor Clark is now with the Lord, but he taught me very early on as a follower of Jesus to attend church. It was a non-negotiable when I started getting discipled. I was to be at church. He taught me to invest my financial earnings in the church. This was still in high school. I had a part-time job. I would go to my job after school or if during football season after practice and I would work at my job. And that, at that time, actually, it was a convenience store. 
until about 11 o'clock at night. So I, I made money. I, I paid for things like my car and my insurance and my gas and so forth. There weren't cell phones. Or at least I didn't have one if there were cell phones. So I had various things I needed to pay, but I was taught at a very early Christian age, spiritual age, that I ought to invest my financial earnings in the church. So, so I did. He taught me to spend my energies for the church. And so I, I began doing that. Pastor Clark taught me to volunteer for various opportunities in and through the church. He taught me to fellowship on a regular basis with other brothers and sisters within the church. From the time I became a Christian, I learned, and this is massive for me, and I'm so very grateful for this, I learned that embracing Christ in faith necessarily meant embracing the church in love. Those two were never separated for me, as I think they have been for so many. As Sinclair Ferguson has written in his book, Devoted to God's Church, believing in Christ means belonging to a local church. Believing means belonging. It means more than that, but it must never mean less than that. I had the privilege from the very beginning of becoming a Christian of understanding this, and I recognize that was not my own doing. That was a gift of God through a faithful man of God, and in this case, a faithful pastor in Willie Clark. Since then, I've had the privilege of serving as a church member now for almost 23 years. Those years pale in comparison to some of you in the room. But that's the majority of my life, 23 years as a church member. I've had the privilege of serving as a youth pastor. Thank God for his grace. I was a youth pastor very early, earlier than I should have been. But God is merciful. I had the privilege of serving as a pastoral intern for a few years. And now I've had the privilege of serving as a senior pastor in two churches for a total of almost 15 years. Again, this pales in comparison to some of you in the room, but it did my heart good to reflect on this over the last couple of weeks. I suppose you could say that my life has been immersed in the church. It's been immersed in God's people. Not because of any wisdom of my own, but because of God's mercy. Because the moment I came to faith in Christ, I, I was taught that coming to Jesus meant more than coming to the church, but certainly did not mean less. And so this means, by the way, this means that I have tasted firsthand both the joys and the heartaches of being an engaged member in the church, this side of resurrection glory. As a pastor, I have seen members at their best and I have seen members at their worst. I have received gracious compliments, compliments I did not deserve, Gracious and tangible demonstrations of generosity I did not merit and did not earn. And I have also received from time to time hateful accusations, injuries in the church. Considering all that I have experienced, and again, I want to say this time and time again, 
For some of you, it's minuscule. But for me, it's just been massive. Considering all that I have experienced as a member and pastor of churches, I have a simple thesis this morning. And it's really the thesis of this short, four-week, I think, sermon series. Four-week, I think, sermon series. And this is the thesis that we will spend time unpacking a bit through a series of texts this morning. If you want to jot this down, you can jot down the thesis. Here it is. Even with all its stains and blemishes, highlight that, even with all its stains and blemishes, the church is still the dearest place on earth. I believe that. I believe that sometimes on account of my experience, and I believe that oftentimes in spite of my experience, as I think you'll see in the texts or a few texts this morning. Well, to understand and embrace this thesis, we are going to answer a question. And so getting at this a couple of ways, really, you have a thesis, but I also want to give you a question. It's a kind of subject question. And you'll see that the majority of the sermon will deal with answering the question because if we answer the question, I think we have validated the thesis. Here's the question. What is the church? What is the church? I would contend that if we understand what the church is, we will inevitably conclude it must be the dearest place on earth. Now, there are a couple of ways we could define church. Perhaps a lengthy introduction this morning because it's the beginning of a sermon series and I've been on vacation. A couple of ways we could define church this morning. One of the ways is what we could call a prosaic definition or a propositional definition. This is the kind of definition you would find perhaps in the glossary of a systematic theology book. And we could do that. We could offer a definition and then unpack a definition. For example, here's a prosaic definition that I have adapted from Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen's book, Rediscovered Church. We had the privilege of handing out a number of copies of Rediscovered Church recently. And so I thought, well, let's use their definition, although I have adapted it a bit. Here's a potential propositional or prosaic definition of church. A church is a group of believers gathered under the oversight of elders to proclaim the gospel, affirm one another through the ordinances, and display God's holiness and love throughout the world. I'm going to read that again because there will be some of you in the room who really want to write down the entire definition. So I'm going to read it for you one more time so that you don't throw your Bible at me. Here's the definition. A church is a group of believers gathered under the oversight of elders to proclaim the gospel, affirm one another through the ordinances, and display God's holiness and love throughout the world. We could, as I mentioned a moment ago, we could theoretically just unpack this definition bit by bit, piece by piece. In fact, I considered this. I considered the entire sermon being a kind of exposition of that definition as we pointed to various texts of Scripture. However, 
rather than focusing on this definition, I would prefer that we piece together what I would call a mosaic, not a prosaic definition, but offering a mosaic. I would prefer we do what scripture, I think, does more often than not in defining church. And that is seize upon images of the church we find in scripture. How does God's word communicate the nature, the essence, the definition of the church? Well, it's often not through a prosaic or propositional definition, although those things are certainly helpful, which is why I gave you one. But more times than not, God communicates the definition and beauty of the church through images, concrete images. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Now, if you're taking notes, here's an outline for you. Two stages, two stages. First, we are going to identify and briefly unpack images of the church in scripture. And we won't be able to do them justice. There are countless images of the church in scripture. We're going to highlight three of them, just three. I've selected three, three that I think are prominent in scripture. So first, we will look at and unpack three images of the church in scripture. Secondly, we will conclude our time looking at implications for the church. So first, images of the church, and this will be the bulk of our time, I think, together. Not counting, excluding the introduction just now. First, images of the church. Secondly, implications for the church. How might these images inform us as followers of Jesus Christ or even potentially those who don't know the Lord this morning? Well, let's get at it now by looking at these three images. And we are gonna fly through some of these. I wish we could spend more time, but I just wanted to lay a foundation, this first sermon for what is to come in the following three weeks. The first image I want to consider is the church as heaven's embassy. The church as heaven's embassy. And this comes right out of the text in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. The church as heaven's embassy on earth. Now, just to put a little context in the text, Jesus and his disciples are traveling through a region of the ancient world known as Caesarea Philippi. And, and Jesus asks this probing question, doesn't he? Who do people say that the son of man is? What are people saying about me? And in particular, who am I according to the testimony of other people? Now, of course, you understand it's not that Jesus doesn't know. He's teaching. He's teaching his disciples. And his disciples respond with a series of answers. Some say that you are John the Baptist. Now, at this point in Matthew's gospel, where is John? He's without a head. He's been beheaded for his faithfulness. And so some perhaps are saying that, that this must be John the Baptist kind of revisiting us supernaturally. It's possible that some didn't know John had passed away. But I suspect that this was a thought that maybe, maybe John has come back to life. Some say John the Baptist, others say, Jesus, that you are Elijah, the Elijah that would come on that last day, according to Malachi. And still others say, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, 
There's not a consensus, you see. Now notice verse 15 in the text. So you have your Bibles open to Matthew 16. Notice verse 15 of Matthew chapter 16. And he said to them, but who do you, you say that I am? And notice how personal this gets. He's not just talking about the third person. What do people say about the son of man? No, now, of course, he addresses his disciples and, and the son of man turns into the first person. Me. Who do you say I am? Peter rightly responds. Good old Peter. He's the first one to respond most of the time for good or for ill. This time for good, soon hereafter for ill. We're not going to look at that text this morning. But here Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Speaking on behalf of the apostles, I take it. Which, by the way, I think Peter often is a kind of mouthpiece for the apostles. He says what everyone else is thinking. And while we are not able to deal with all the details of this text, for our purposes, here's what I want you to see. I want you to notice what Jesus does. In a text where the focus is on understanding who Jesus is, the Christ, the Messiah, the one promised throughout all of Scripture, God would send to rescue Israel out of slavery. Jesus is this Messiah. Notice how Jesus takes who he is and weaves it into who the church is. He transitions seamlessly to the church. Look down at verse 18. This is a text about who Jesus is. Now look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my what? Church. Fascinating. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now as an aside, because curious minds want to know. I take it that the rock in the text upon which Christ will build his church is a reference both to Peter as a representative of the apostles and to Peter's confession about Christ as the apostolic teaching. I think it's both. I don't think it's either or. If you have questions about that later, you can grab me. This is the first time Matthew 16, verse 18, this is the first time the New Testament uses the word church. I do not think it is immaterial or insignificant that the church surfaces in a context where the focus is on who Jesus is. Because we're going to see here in just a few moments that one of the images, one of the prominent images we find in the New Testament concerning the church shows us this tremendous unity between Christ and his people. And so we see that from the very beginning here in Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus moves seamlessly to talking about who he is, or rather from talking about who he is, to talking about who the church is. You can't have one without the other. That's the idea. He tethers the nature of the church to his own person as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now look down at verse 19 where we're told what the church is. Heaven's embassy on the earth. This becomes plain. Look at these words. I will give you the keys 
of the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, to whom is Jesus speaking? Well, in some sense, he's speaking to Peter. In some sense, he's speaking to Peter as a representative of the apostles. And if we read Matthew 16 alongside of Matthew 18, I would contest he's speaking to the church because the church is the one built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone, according to the apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.20. So here he's, in a roundabout way, speaking to the church, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That is, you have authority. What kind of authority? The authority of heaven. You represent heaven. Whatever you bind on earth, notice, notice the language. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And this is the perfect tense, by the way. It's almost as if he's saying whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. The church really is to mirror heaven, not initiate heaven. We're to respond to the realities of heaven, not as it were create heaven. So whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And as I mentioned, I'll just point this out. These functions of, of binding and, and loosing are also described in Matthew 18, verses 18, 19, and 20. The only other context where Jesus uses the word church in Matthew's gospel. Observe that heaven and earth are connected how? How are heaven and earth connected through the ministry of the church? It's fascinating, isn't it? Through the church, whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. So while there is much we can say about the weaknesses, the blemishes, and the failures of the church, we could do that. It would be accurate. I know someone who contributes to those weaknesses and failures. He happens to be the one that you call your pastor. We could spend time ruminating about these weaknesses and failures, but according to Jesus himself, the church is heaven's outpost, heaven's embassy on earth. Listen to the way Paul describes the church members who lived in the ancient Roman colony known as Philippi in Philippians 3.20. Philippians was the first book I had the privilege of expositing here as Pastor First Baptist Powell. Seems like yesterday to me, I was in this text. Seems like an eternity ago to you, probably. Philippians 3.20, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the church, don't miss this because we're laying a foundation for the entire series. The church and its members have the sacred privilege of reflecting the culture of heaven on the earth. That's what you're called to do. But I want to say it this way, more than what you're called to do first, it's who you are in Christ. That's massive. I fear that if we begin with function, if we begin with this is what you ought to do and ought to be, church. This is how a member ought to function, church. This is how a pastor ought to lead, church. If we start with function, I fear that we'll begin to fall prey to that ancient 
heresy known as legalism. That we will aim to function so that we can somehow become. When in fact the gospel turns this on its head. Now what God teaches, even concerning the nature of the church, is this is who the church is by grace. The church is heaven's embassy. Therefore, become according to function what you already are according to grace. That's where we're going. So we're starting with who we already are on account of Christ. First of all, we are heaven's embassy on the earth. Secondly, and we've got to speed things up just a little. Secondly, the church is God's family. We're still talking about the three images. The first image is the church is heaven's embassy. The second image is the church is God's family. Now, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. We are going to turn a couple of times. If you don't want to turn, you don't have to turn. You can write this down. Don't get lost in the weeds and don't ever be ashamed to open up your Bibles to the index if you have a hard time finding 1 Timothy. I still get lost at times with the order. So I hope it's okay to do from time to time. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Just a couple of verses, and we're just going to mine the image of the church in this text. We could have selected any number of texts. We picked this one. It's fairly straightforward and simple. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon. Again, he's writing to Timothy, who's pastoring in Ephesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, verse 15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. I love that. How one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, And so Paul's instruction to Timothy has included, up until this point in 1 Timothy, his instruction has included items such as the appointment of qualified men to serve as elders and also as deacons. He's included this instruction to Timothy concerning the way men and women should worship appropriately and instruct one another. He's even included things like, how is it that men ought to pray in the assembly? How is it that women ought to pray in the assembly when God's people are gathered? And he's included other activities that relate directly to what God's assembled people should do when they gather. And it's in this context he uses the image of the church as God's family or God's household. This is, and I've said this to you before, I believe, and I've been taught this. This is not a discovery that I have made. It's one that mentors have entrusted to me and hopefully I've entrusted to others and so on and so forth. This is perhaps the predominant image of the church in the New Testament. It's one of, if not the primary image throughout scripture of the church. And the image left such an impression, that is the image of the church as God's family, left such an impression on the early church 
that in the second century, one of the chief accusations that early Christians had against them in and around Rome was that they were incestuous. They married family. But what kind of a religion teaches others that it's permissible to marry family members? Now, why in the world would the broader culture accuse Christians of being incestuous in the second century? Well, it was because Christians referred to one another as brothers and sisters. This was a massive misunderstanding, but you see this image of the church as God's family left an indelible impression on the affections and even the language that the early church used in conversation with one another. They considered the church their family. And by the way, a bit of an excursus here. Detour, maybe. When the church is a marginalized, persecuted minority, this image of the church's family, I think, gets strengthened. When you are persecuted for being a Christian, which the second century church understood all too well, when you are persecuted for being a Christian, this draws you closer to others who also name Christ their master and Lord. I suspect, I suspect that the American church would potentially benefit from these kinds of things in the future. Only God knows, I suspect. There is this section in Matthew 12 where Jesus was informed that his mother and brothers were looking for him. He was teaching and, and some come to him and they say, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside, they're looking for you. Other gospel texts even name his sisters. And Jesus answers with these words, Matthew 12, verses 48 and following, who is my mother? I'd love to see the look on everyone's face when he asked that question. He's finally lost it. Who is my mother? He goes on, to ask, and who are my brothers? Verse 39 says, and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here, here are my mother and my brothers. Verse 50, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, Jesus is not teaching us that earthly families are of no consequence for Christians. That's, that's not what he's teaching. After all, scripture abounds with instructions regarding how to be faithful husbands, how to be faithful wives, how to be faithful fathers and mothers and, and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and so forth. So he's not teaching there's no consequence at all, no obligation at all for the Christian to live in a healthy relationship with his or her earthly families. He is, however, teaching, don't miss this, the primacy and eternal nature of the church as God's family. We tend to invert that reality, don't we? We tend to assume that the church is indeed, as Christians, if you know the Lord and you're involved in a local church, and perhaps in this local church, you... I, doubtless, you, you have no problem with me referring to the church as your family. But we, what we tend to do is we tend to say that, yes, but, but our earthly families are, are foremost. 
And on the one hand, I, I think I understand what's taking place. It's, it's not always a competition. It's rather that if you're faithful, I suppose, as a member of God's household, you will also be faithful as a member of your own earthly household. This is true. But what Jesus does here is he teaches us the primacy and the priority of God's family, the church. I've even seen lately, again, you know, you remember the bracelets, what would Jesus do? Remember these? Charles Shelton, I believe, is the one that wrote the book some time ago. Sold, I don't know how many copies. In His Steps, I believe, was the name of the book. What would Jesus do? Massive movement. And I've seen some lately. I've thought, wow, those disappeared for a while and here they are again. What would Jesus do? Well, he consistently shows us the priority of the church, doesn't he? What would Jesus do? He'd commit to the church. He'd be involved in the church. What has Jesus done? He died for the church. Perhaps that's instructive for us as Christians, followers of Christ. So in this sense, no earthly family is properly ordered unless it is found within the eternal family. The eternal family of God known as the church. Any earthly family that is found outside of the eternal family is disordered and merely temporal, temporary. If Ken and I, uh, this was an analogy I was told years ago and it stuck with me and perhaps it'll stick with you as well. Perhaps you've heard it. If Ken and I were, were to adopt a child, not only would the child be receiving parents, but the child would also be receiving three siblings. The child would be receiving two brothers and a sister. You see, becoming my son or daughter would necessarily include becoming the brother or sister to Madeline, Titus, and Micah. So it is with the church. Becoming a son or a daughter of God's through faith in Christ inevitably entails becoming a member of a household with many brothers and many sisters. As one songwriter wrote many years ago, in the mouth, as it were, of Jesus, if you love me, you will love the church, God's household. Finally, in addition to heaven's embassy and God's family, we find the church as Christ's body. The church as Christ's body. Now, Flip over, if you will. This is the last time I'm going to have you turn. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm certain at some point in this series, I'm going to say Moses wrote or something like that. (laughs) Moses didn't write any of these. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're just going to read a couple of verses. We'll read three. Let's read three of them. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, first of all, and then we'll jump down to verse 27. 1 Corinthians 12, or as parts of the world say, 1 Corinthians. 
12, 12 through 13, and then verse 27. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, notice what Paul says. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Now verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, speaking to the church in Corinth. So you, the church, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So the analogy the Apostle Paul seizes upon to communicate the nature of the church is that of a physical body. And that's how he starts. He's just starting back in verse 12 of chapter 12, describing the reality of a physical body being one body yet having many members or many parts. Just as the human body is a single entity formed by various parts or contributing members, so also is the body of Christ or the church. But I want you to notice, and this, this is massive. I'm still, I'm still ruminating about this reality, but I want you to notice what the apostle does in moving from the analogy of a physical body to the church. He does this in verse 12. So you're looking at the text with me. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. And he writes, just as the body, this is the analogy, just as the body is one, has many members. All the members of the body, though many are one body. Now notice what he does. After the analogy, the conclusion of verse 12, so it is with Christ. He doesn't say, so it is with Christians. He doesn't say, so it is with the church. He says, so it is with Christ. In other words, for Paul to describe the body of Christ, which is what he goes on to do, this is a text about the church, the body of Christ. For him to do this is for Paul to describe Christ himself. This is what some ancient theologians referred to as the mystical union between the church and Christ. The mystical union is another way of saying we have no idea what this means. You learn these technical terms to obscure your ignorance and to hide it from others. For Paul to talk about the church, don't miss this, Christians, is for Paul to talk about Christ. No church, no Christ. Is it too strong for you? I don't think it's too strong in the text. Christ certainly is the cause but Christ tethers himself to his people. If you show me a head without a body, I will show you 
a corpse. Now again, what I'm not suggesting is that the church somehow gives a life to Christ. No, the converse is true. Christ gives life to the church. But what Paul is doing is he's suggesting that a relationship with Jesus Christ always entails a relationship with his body, with the church. To know Christ is also to know the church. To know the church is to know Christ. To have a relationship with Christ is to have a relationship with the church. To have a relationship with the church is to have a relationship with Christ. And this is why some have, some have said such strong things. Cyprian actually says this in De Unitate. You don't have to remember that. On the unity of the church. It's a very strong statement and it needs to be unpacked. But he says, he cannot have God as his father who does not have the church as his mother. It's strong for us as Protestants, I know. But he was on to something that we've lost in the last 150 years or so. That somehow we can have this individual relationship with Jesus Christ divorced from the local We can have a relationship with Christ distinguished from the local church. But I would submit to you that we can't have a relationship with Jesus Christ severed from the church. That's nonsense to what the Apostle Paul says in the text. So it is with Christ. And then he goes on to describe the church. This is true to such an extent to such an extent that Paul can correct schisms in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13 with these words. There are divisions in the church and Paul uses this to correct those divisions. Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? And if Christ isn't divided, nor should his body be divided. You see? Now he's moving from reality to function. And we want to consistently do that together. Matthew 25, verse 40, Jesus describes service rendered to the church as service rendered to Christ when he says these words, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's mystical union between Christ and the church. This has far-reaching ramifications for us. Doesn't it when the body of Christ is difficult to love? This has ramifications for us when the body of Christ is difficult to serve and difficult to embrace. Moreover, it serves as a warning to those who have convinced themselves that it is possible to love Christ and hate the church. This is not okay. So this analogy of the church being the body of Christ presses us into sensing that to love Christ, embrace Christ, and bless Christ is to love, embrace, and bless Christ. The church. Well, we need to move on to some implications and we won't spend long here. We've got a few more weeks to unpack all of this and we will finish the sermon series feeling as though we need more time, but we'll do more over the next few weeks. We've highlighted three of the many images in scripture concerning the church and these three images really do help define church. This is a mosaic definition. The church is heaven's embassy by grace, 
through Christ. The church is God's family by grace through Christ and the church is Christ's body by grace through Christ. So let's conclude our time considering a few implications. I think I'll give you three. Three implications. And we have to start here. First of all, if you've not become a genuine citizen of heaven through faith in Christ, if you've not come to know what it's like to become a member of God's household through surrendering to Christ, and if you've not embraced what it means to be a part of Christ's body through faith in Christ and involvement in the church, I exhort you this morning to trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in Christ. We don't want to mix up the order here. It's, it's, it's not as if you come into the church and place your trust in the church and it's the church that infuses you with this life-giving power and brings you to Christ. Rather, it's that you come, as it were, to Christ through his strength and in coming to Christ, you're coming into the church as he brings you into his body, God's household, heaven's embassy. It may be, it may be that, that throughout this sermon series, you become aware that you thought, you thought you loved Christ. It may be that you loved a charlatan Christ. Or less than the whole Christ to steal from Sinclair Ferguson again. It may be that you thought you could just intellectually assent to the reality of who Jesus claims to be without giving yourself wholesale to Christ, which also means giving yourself wholesale to the church. If that's where you are, I would love to visit with you. Others would love to visit with you. And it may be that you're just on a journey as we all are. I suspect this is the case in my life. I I think more and more and more I'm learning to embrace more of Christ. I think that's part of it. I do. Yes, I got saved 23 years ago. And I have been getting saved ever since. So if you want to talk more about what it means to follow Jesus Christ, surrender to Christ, know Christ, and as a result, come to treasure the dearest place on earth because of God's grace, then would you grab someone that you know loves the Lord? Would you grab me after the service? Would you even consider staying afterward and before you leave this building on the left-hand side out there, going into the room called Crossroads and having a conversation with somebody who would love to come alongside of you and perhaps you even alongside of us and learn what it means to serve Christ in a service church. So that's one implication. Second implication is this. Embrace the church for what she really is. Embrace the church for what she really is. And I've said this, but some of you have been injured by the church. The church has been far from safe, much less dear to some of you. Perhaps many of you. But friends, the preciousness, 
And the beauty of the church is a lot like the process of personal sanctification. As we've said a moment ago, sanctification is that process of becoming in practice what we already are by grace. According to God's grace, the church is heaven's embassy. The church is God's family. The church is Christ's body. She is in process of becoming by practice what she already is by grace. This means, I think, that we don't love the church primarily because the people in the church are wonderful. I'm one of those less than wonderful people We love the church because we have come to know the wonder and infinite beauty of the Savior who gave his life for the church, promised to build the church, resides in the church, and promises to purify the church. So in this sense, our love and commitment to the church is a commitment by faith, not in what we see, but in what we don't see. The things that we now see are temporary. I've read that somewhere. But the things that we don't see are eternal, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians. So we love the church not for what she currently is. Maybe we should say it this way, not for what we currently are. We love the church for what God promises we are becoming. A people without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Third implication, and then we've got to wrap up, and I know this is what you get for allowing me to travel to Texas on vacation and not be in the pulpit last Lord's Day. But thanks be to God for our brother Eric who brought God's word in my absence. Third implication, live faithfully as a member of the church. And we really won't spend long here because I think next week we will focus on this. Live faithfully as a member of the church. So understanding the nature of the church, and we've said this, understanding who we are propels us and motivates us to live according to that already existing reality, to live as members of the church. If we are citizens of heaven, then we should live as such. If we are members of God's family, we should live as members of God's family. If we are parts of Christ's body, we ought to function as a part of Christ's body. I often consider, especially in an age as our own, which is, by the way, not unique. It really isn't. We overplay the uniqueness of every age. There's really nothing new under the sun. But I do consider in an age afflicted by political and social vitriol, the tremendous opportunity the church has to be who we are, to live and function according to who we are by God's grace. So what if we spent less time? What if we spent less time doing things like ranting on social media and more time serving our neighbors? This is living faithfully as members of the church. What if rather than focusing our attention on cultural transformation, we pooled our efforts to lovingly address transformation of our own hearts and the hearts of our brothers and sisters in the church, addressing persistent, observable, and heinous sins among our members. A hard task of doing that. What if instead of allowing political movements and decisions mediated to us through our newsfeed to dictate our moods, 
I've done that. Have you? Mine, I've done that. What if instead of doing that, we spent more time meditating on the unshakable advance of the kingdom of God? A kingdom that could never fail. I think these and other activities would help us faithfully be by practice the people we already are by grace. Well, let's wrap up with a Charles Spurgeon quote, shall we? Just for the name the dearest place on earth has come from. All of this is why Spurgeon was able to say these words. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should have never joined one at all. And then Spurgeon insightfully says, and the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it. For it would have not been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. And then here's what Spurgeon says. And I hope you sense this as well. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of transforming us by your grace. Thank you for Christ, our head, our savior, our master, our source of life. And thank you that we are found in Christ, that the life that belongs to Christ has been communicated to us, the church. Thank you that we are, as the church, heaven's embassy, God's family, Christ's body. Help us to function. Help us to live in practice what we already are by grace. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior and head of the church together. And all God's people said, amen.